The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Hey guys, my name is Gar. Uh, I work down in the front office, so I probably spoke to some of you guys getting checked in. Um, Josh and Jenna, I, hopefully they hooked you guys up and got you set up down there. If not, that'll fall on me. But uh, So this changing course uh, topic that we're going to talk about, it's really about changing the direction, uh, d- the direction in your home. So whether you've been, you know, you You've been in a, a relationship or in a marriage where, you know, you've, you've lived rightly for the Lord and then things kind of got off track or you just never were on track, whatever it is, you know, these are all principles that we'll talk about, about how do we kind of get back, get back our focus and get back to pursuing the Lord the right way and building a foundation in our homes where we're going to see success and we're going to see our children grow rightly and, and we're going to grow rightly. And if that's not where you are, don't feel like I'm imposing anything on you, just Take this as a as something that you can uh, learn from, and then you know hopefully counsel counsel others that you do ministry with or in your church or, or wherever you are. But for those of you guys who who don't know don't know me, me and my wife moved here uh, about a year and a half ago, and we moved here from Texas. I'd been working in oil and gas there, and I'd been in the military for about eleven years before that. Uh, but we spent you know probably the first ten years of our marriage not pursuing the Lord. And then well, once we got out, man, we, we got in a, a community of believers that, that loved us well and led us well. And man, we had a lot of really tough obstacles to, to overcome to, to get our marriage back on tra- track alone. But then what we found through that was once we got our marriage back on track that we still had to change the course in our home. Our, our children had to start being discipled well. Uh, fortunately for us, they were at a, a young age. So it was a little easier to, to work through that process, but it started with us. And, you know, it started with, with me as the leader of the home, and, and then my wife is kind of the primary one that spends the most time with them during the day to disciple and love them well, and then us as a team to be unified and, and to lead them in a way where we're going to make them successful and we're going to be able to send them out of our home. That way they go have a, an impact for the gospel on the nations, and that's really what we're trying to equip. So what I what I did is whenever I was asked to kind of present this idea of changing course in the home was to look back on on our walk together and and what the past four years has kind of looked like as we've gone through this process and taken a few nuggets out of there about like, okay these are the important things that we really had to nail down for us to gain some traction before we started seeing like real results in in the home. So first question, easy math question. It is a trick question, though. All right. So it, there was five seagulls on a pier, and one of them decided to fly off. How many were left? Trick question. That's right. There's still five, right? There's still five because one made a decision to leave, but it never did, right? There, there's no difference between a person who has intention and a person who never thought about it in the first place. We, we're so quick to judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge everybody else by their actions. And when it comes to actually producing change in the home, 
right? We have all these intentions about how things are supposed to happen or, oh, we're going to get to this or one day this is going to happen and one day I'm going to start doing that. And all these intentions pile up, but we never put any feet to action behind it. So the intention of doing it really in our lives literally makes no difference than if we had never thought about it at all. Intention doesn't produce anything. So as I discuss change, I want you to have the mindset that that change is not this long process. Like, I think that's another myth that change takes all this time. Change doesn't take time, right? Having the resolve to commit to change does. It may take us time to get to a point where we decide to actually move on it. But once we make that decision, change is instant. Like, we start seeing things go into place. So go ahead and set in your mind that as we walk into this, not to have the intention of creating change in the home or changing course in the home, but to have a resolve in your mindset that we will do this, right? This isn't going to be an intention thing. This is something we're actually going to do. So the first thing, the first note I have here is to, to edit your life. All right. So to begin to edit your life. And again, this is stuff that, you know, my, me and my wife, we really had to work through and we had to work through it seeking wisdom. But how many of you guys have flown before? Flown on an airplane, everybody? Okay. How many of you guys flown with children? Okay. A decent amount. All right. So whenever the, the cabin, you know, cabin's filling up, flight attendants in the front, they're going through the seat buckles and the exits and all that, and they pull out the mask. What do they, what do they say about that mask if you're, if you're traveling with small children? Put it on yourself first, right? All right. So the first part of editing your life, I want you to think about is to put your mask on first. Because when it comes to leading the home well and discipling the home well, we have to have that idea that we have to put our mask on first. My personal discipline, my spiritual disciplines, my relationship with the Lord has to be the primary focus. Because I have to be founded and I have to be grounded in Christ alone. Not My focus can't be on fixing my wife. So you can't be focused on fixing your spouse. My, I can't be focused on fixing my children. Like my, my primary focus is that I am anchored in the Lord and that I'm seeking him each day. That way I'm equipped to actually provide that. Because what, what happens is a lot of times the reason we end up in this, this situation in the first place is we've already kind of misplaced our identity, right? Our identity wasn't founded in Christ. That's how we got off course. So now if I become a fixer in my mind, my misplaced identity is now in fixing my spouse or in fixing my kids or in fixing something else. And now if that's where my identity is, that's where my satisfaction is going to come from. And I'm going a slippery slope because the minute my wife doesn't respond the way I want her to or my kids don't respond the way I want her to, then I'm going to be discouraged. I'm going to be filled with unbelief and I'm going to feel like it's all about me again. And I get bogged down and then I'm right back where I started with. Because my identity is not in Christ. My identity is, again, on the results that I'm getting out of my spouse or my kids. So our identity, first and foremost, has to be in Christ. The next point I have is that we need to edit our relationships. So many of us surround ourselves with people that either aren't pursuing the Lord or they're pursuing the Lord and they're not giving us wise counsel. You know, one thing that me and my wife had to overcome was we, have, we had so many people trying to speak counsel into our lives but it wasn't good counsel at all you know it was typically like on my wife's side they're like that guy's just a jerk and they were right but still it wasn't good counsel all right they're saying that guy's a jerk like you you can move on like you have every right to leave him you should leave him all right just take the kids and go or you know you should retaliate you should make him feel the pain you should do this and on the same thing on my side i'd surrounded myself with people that were going your wife's crazy man like 
She's way too jealous. She's way too controlling. You don't need to put up with that. You don't need to listen to that. You, you guys should just divorce. You should move on. So we had all these people, all this noise around us that wasn't feeding anything, anything wise or good counsel into our lives. So we absolutely have to edit those relationships because anybody who says they're a friend, but they speak negatively about your, your spouse, man, they're just pouring fuel on the fire. Like they are feeding poison in your relationship. And that is not a friend. All right. True friends, true wisdom. Like those people are going to be the ones that are coming alongside of you. And when they see that hurt, regardless of where the blame is, they're the ones that are constantly pointing you back to Jesus and saying, like, seek the Lord on this. All right. Go to the elders in the church. Whatever it is, pray together, like read scripture together. Those are the kind of relationships you want to build. So make it a point to edit the relationships. Be very mindful of who you allow in your inner circle and allow to be a part of those conversations. And the next thing is to to edit your approach. So if our approach was good, we probably wouldn't be in this position in the first place. Right? If my words were always right, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. If my wife wasn't so quick-tempered or I wasn't so sharp with my words or I wasn't so quick to just ignore an issue and go isolate myself in, in a football game or, or whatever, like if, if those skills, those approaches had been right in the first place, we may not have ended up where we are today. So I have to admit that something in my approach has to change. And oftentimes it's, it's a matter of communication and how we express love with each other. So what I've learned is I've found that the way that I express love is the way I want to receive love. So I also need to expect the same thing from my spouse. The way that she expresses love is probably the way she also wants to receive it. So the way I express love is quality time. Like if I want my kids to feel needed and loved, then I'm going to cut out quality time to spend with them. I'll take my son to the river to go fishing. I'll take my daughter down to the Mexican restaurant to have a dessert and just spend some time with. Like that's how I show I show affection. That's also how I want it. Like, I feel most loved when my wife cuts out a section of her evening just to sit with me. Like, we don't have to talk about anything important. We just need to be together. But that's kind of my love language, and that's the way I like to give it, and that's the way I like to receive it. My children and my spouse aren't the same way. My, my daughter and my youngest son, like, they, they are like cats. Like, they want to rub up on you, and they want to nuzzle you, and they're going to be real close and real touchy. Like, that's not me. And it's hard for me to receive that, and it's really hard for me to give it. But that's how they show love. So if that's how they show it, that's how they want to receive it. So even though I cut out time for my daughter, and she's appreciative of that, like in her mind, in her young mind, that's not love. She doesn't see it that way. Like that's not how she recognizes it, because that's not how she gives it. So if I really want my daughter to feel loved, I have to love her in the way that she understands. Like what is her love language? So if I really want my daughter to be loved, then I'm going to have to chill out, let her sit in my lap, like do the snuggle thing that I'm really uncomfortable with. But I have to do it because that's how my daughter receives it. So it's about becoming more sacrificial in, in how we view ourselves and how we give love to a point where it's not about how I want to give it, but how they can best receive it. Because there's no point. I can spend all the time in the world cutting out these sections of, of time to have this quality time with my kids. But if they don't recognize it as love, then what's the point? My, my oldest son, he, he, is, he feeds off words of affirmation. Like, he wants to hear you say, I love you. He wants to hear you say that he's done a good job. He wants you to verbally approve of the things he does. I grew up in a home where that was weakness. Like, if I fished for a compliment with my dad, like, he squashed it like that. 
He's like, that's insecurity. Don't do that. So I've built up this wall about, you know, words of affirmation. If somebody seeks it or wants it, I think just out of my own brokenness, kind of the the way I was raised, I go, that's weakness. Like they're not self-confident. That's why they're seeking that. I, I haven't chosen to see it as an expression of love. Like that's how they give it. That's how they want to receive it. So as hard as it is for me to not to tell my son I love him because I do that, but to constantly tell my son, you're doing a really good job. I'm really proud of you here. Like kind of feeding that, man, I have to do it because that's the only way he expressed love. And I've seen that. Now that he's getting into the 11 and 12-year-old stage, like I'm, I've started to see this, this trend over the past couple months where, you know, as the hormones are kicking in and he's starting to kind of become a young man, like he's got all these emotions and now this seed of anger started to grow in him. And I'm like, man, why is, I, I don't understand why he's an angry kid. And it wasn't until like I sat down with him, really sat down with him. I said, you're angry and I don't know why. I, I need you to talk this out with me. And he didn't really know how to express it in his own words, but kind of like what Brody was talking about where you listen to the stuff in between. I'm listening to what he's saying, but I'm listening to what's going on between. And the, what I'm hearing in between is he doesn't feel loved. Because he's seeking affirmation that I wasn't given. So because of that, he's getting kind of angry and resentful. So then I go, okay, I understand. Like, I know I'm not showing love the way you need to receive it. And that's on me. So I take responsibility for that. I'm sorry as your father, I apologize. And I'm going to do better at that. And through that process, it opened up some, some dialect that we didn't have before. But now we've got the ability now where I can revisit that. And man, I've, I've seen change in just a matter of weeks. Where now, you know, he, he's opening up more. He's not as angry. Like, he's, he's really starting to receive it, and he's starting to feel it. But that anger was growing from the idea that he had a father he didn't feel like really cared about him or really loved him. So when I edit my approach, it's not about how I want to give love. It's how, how my family can best receive it. So I need to focus on that. All right, next thing. Ha, have you ever heard anybody use the term spike the guns before? Okay. So spike the guns, spike the guns is, uh, it was, it's kind of a military, uh, an old military term that was used to talk about thwarting somebody's plan. You, you spiked their guns, but it came from, you know, back in the, in the 1800s where they had those big brass cannons. And as the infantry would go through the cannon lines during an assault, they would carry these headless nails in pouches or in pockets with them. And as they passed the cannons, they would drive those, those nails into the fuse holes of the cannon so that the cannon couldn't be used again. And they called it spiking the guns. And the reason I put this thing in here about spiking the guns being one of these points is so many times in our marriage, in our relationships, man, we have these tough seasons where, you know, we're two broken people living in a broken world. Like, I'm sinful, my wife is sinful, we're going to hurt each other. And we're going to do things that offends the other. And we're going to do things that are wrong. And we're going to have to confess. And we're going to have to ask for forgiveness. And those are things we're going to have to work through. But so often when I see in marriages and in counseling situations where these things that we've thought we've worked through and we've worked past, we get past them. And then all of a sudden, those guns turn back on us. Like we thought that issue was dead. And now it's swung back around and it's shooting us in the back. All right. So Napoleon at Waterloo, right? Napoleon lost at Waterloo. But what most people don't know is he actually won before he lost. He had a cavalry of 5,000 that he rode against the British guns and they swept through there and they took the cannons. 
But when the infantry followed, they hadn't taken nails with them to spike them. So one British cannon team got their cannon back, and they used that to free another cannon team and another. And then what happened was Napoleon found himself encircled by cannons that he'd already ridden past, and they devoured them. And so many times, that's what happens in marriages. We work through, we, we assault through these hard seasons of life, and we get on the backside, and we're like, man, we're, we're so glad we're through that. But what happens is we use these opportunities for offense against our spouse. And, the, and that debt, like, I, I understand it. The power of debt, like, it makes us feel like we, we have something that somebody else needs. So if my spouse has wronged me, it's easy for me to hang on to that wrong and go, oh, man, this feels good because I have forgiveness that they need. So I kind of feel like I've got some power over them. And then on, on top of that, it also gives us kind of this superiority complex where we go, man, I'm, I'm in so much better a place than they are. Like, can you believe how bad she messed up or he messed up? Like, I, I feel so much better about myself. And we start to feed off that, and it builds this anger inside of us, and it just kind of grows until eventually we start using that, that, uh, that event, that incident, that little cannon, right? We start using it to subtly attack them. And it's kind of a, in a defense mechanism where we get into an argument and we really don't know how to respond and go, oh, yeah, well, you remember that time you did this? I forgave you for that, right? And we fire it back up. And what we're doing is we didn't spike those cannons. We're using them for an opportunity against our spouse. And, man, there is nothing more devastating and that can derail real change in the home faster. Because when you set a foundation in Christ and you start to move forward and understand that I'm a broken man who's married to a broken woman and by the grace of God that we're married, right? Because two broken people that are just going to offend each other all the time, if it wasn't for Christ being the sinner, we're going to utterly fail at this thing. So if I continue in that relationship and then I keep bringing up these things that have happened in the past and I don't spike those things and I let them come back, now we're finding ourselves fighting back uphill against things that we, we thought we'd already beat. So, you know, think of it as a continuous cycle of like gardening, right? When you go through your gardens, you, you pull weeds, right? All right, we're constantly pulling weeds. But so many times we pull weeds and we come back and there's weeds growing in the same spot. Well, when you pull weeds, you need to plant something fruitful in its place. That way the weeds don't grow back. But we don't do that. We don't pull the weeds and plant truth in its place. We just kind of pull the weeds and go, man, I'm glad that's over with. And we kind of move on. And we go back and revisit. We realize, man, that weed's still there. But I I didn't replace any truth in its spot. So that's why it's coming back. So we have to address these things. Address them well. Talk through them. I mean, there's absolutely going to be times where we thought we got past something. And we realize there's some some underlying things that we still need to talk about. Like we need to get back to to the heart of that, to the root of that. And that's absolutely necessary. But there's a big difference between providing clarity into a situation and then using that situation to manipulate our spouses and we can't do that we can't use it as an opportunity because ultimately what happens is as that anger grows inside of us man our kids see it you're not going to hide that from your children so angry parents they raise angry kids and we don't we don't need any more angry children in our society congress is full there's tons of angry children there arguing all day long but that's what we do we get angry, our kids, they feed off of it. We raise angry children and it just kind of, it perpetuates. So what we need to do is we need to spike those cannons. 
the, the beauty in it is that, man, we, we have a God who's given us a mind and the ability to choose how we act over how we feel. We get caught up in our emotions and in that, in that emotion and in that anger and that sadness and everything else, man, we just, we like to ride our emotions. But, but emotions aren't inherently intelligent. Like, emotions are a reaction about whatever we're thinking at the time. So if I can change the way I think about something, change my perspective, that's going to change the way I feel. So in, in those moments, instead of taking an opportunity for an offense, I need to look at it from the perspective of, okay, like I'm broken, my wife's broken. This is an opportunity for ministry. I can get upset about this and I can be mad. Or we can use this as an opportunity to go, okay, what is the heart behind this? All right, where is your anger coming from? How do you feel you're offended? And let's go ahead and address it now and get it behind us. That way, this isn't something that we allow opportunity for the devil and it grows and it grows and it grows. And then eventually the cork pops off at the most inopportune time when it's usually a small thing that wasn't a big deal in the first place. Because I'm sure we've all had moments where we've been angry at our spouse for a week and then by the time it blows up, we go back, we can't even remember where it started at. We've just been kind of snippy at each other for a week and we never even knew how it began. This is that opportunity for the enemy to come in. So the next thing to talk about is focusing on the 8%. So there's this a book, and I'm going to put some book references up at the end for you guys to see. But there's a book by Andy Andrews, and it's called The Noticer. And it's about this guy named Jones. And Jones is this character who's he, he's kind of always 80 years old. Like everybody's always known him that way. He's, he's been around the area for like 50, 50 years. But 50 years ago, people thought he was 80, and today they think he's 80. And he's just this peculiar character that's always there at the most opportune times to speak truth into people's life, but nobody knows where he's from. And it's a really interesting character. But he, Jones meets this guy, this guy named, uh, let me see, Walker Miles. This guy named Walker Miles. And, and Walker picks him up on the side of the road. And, and Walker is a guy who's been successful in business, but he's been through a couple marriages and He's just generally unhappy, and he's angry, and he, he doesn't know how to handle his emotions. He's just really closed off. So Jones takes him to this Waffle House, of course, and they sit down, and they drink coffee, and they talk about you know, what he's going through. And Walker starts to unpack that you know, his father was an alcoholic, and his mother had abandoned him, and he had never had a successful marriage, and he's always been successful in business, but he's never found happiness in that. And it's this man who's just going through his whole life chasing this happiness, chasing nothing, and he's never found any real fulfillment. But he's always worried about what he's going to become and what's going to happen and the what-ifs and this could and that. And so what happens is Jones, unlap, he pulls out a napkin, he starts writing down these percentages. And he said, I want to offer you perspective on how you think and how you see things. So the first thing he wrote down is he wrote, writes down 40%. And we'll have it on the board back up here. So he writes down 40%. He says, 40% of the things that you worry about will never happen. So in our minds, 40%, 40 of our bandwidth up here, we spend it worrying about things that are never going to come to fruition. right? Things that are never going to happen. And even if they did happen, we could never control it in the first place. Like, I, I've got a kid who, I mean, that, that's him. Like he, he spins on that all the time. Where I'll come, he'll come, hey, Dad, can I sleep downstairs? Why do you want to sleep downstairs? What if somebody breaks in upstairs? Nobody's going to break in upstairs. Yeah, but you'll be downstairs if they break in upstairs. And then they can get me before you get upstairs. So, and he'll just run this cycle. 
I'm like, do you realize how crazy this sounds? Like it's completely illogical, but he can't get off of it. It just consumes him. And in the childhood sense, it's easy to see, but as an adult, we, we see it less in ourselves than when it's actually there. We're constantly worrying about where's our next, you know, are the finances going to be enough to finish out the month? You know, how are we going to pay this car off? How are we going to pay this house off? How are we going to get our kids through school? How are we going to do all these things? Right? We're worrying about things that could potentially never happen. And even if they, they can, we're not in a position right now to do anything about it. But that takes up. The next one, the, the 30%, is we worry about things in the past. And this is stuff I'm guilty of. After, after spending, you know, 11 years in, in the military, I did four tours overseas between Iraq and Afghanistan. And I came back home, and I'll tell you, like, this 30% made up about 80% in my mind. I worried about things that had already happened that I couldn't change. And I absolutely let it ruin my life. But so, so much of us, like, we, we have the daddy wounds. We have the alcoholic fathers. We have the, the mothers who abandoned us. We have the abuse we suffered as a child. We have the things that our spouses did to us early in marriage. And we hold on to all these things in the past, and we let that control us rather than moving on and getting on with our lives and focusing on the things that we actually can do something about. Like, it all comes into understanding the sovereignty of God. It wasn't until I grasped that, man, I serve, a, I serve a God who loves me and he's for me. And these things have absolutely happened. Yeah, but there's nothing I can do to change them now. And whatever reason they had in my life, whatever place it took in that moment, like I have to fully trust that the Lord had a purpose in that. And whatever he accomplished through it is greater than I could imagine. But instead, I had this imagination of what my life should have been like and how things should have played out. And if God had only done what I wanted him to do, then things would be so much better. But if I truly believe that he loves me and that his ways are higher than my ways, and I have to understand that whatever my past held, it held it for a purpose. He has a plan in it, and let's move forward. So we can't get caught up in that 30% of the past spinning about what could have been because it doesn't change the fact of where we are today. The next one is, is 12%, and this is kind of the, the endless health worries that we always get into. My, my grandmother was like this. We called her Mama, but you call Mama and be like, how are you doing today? She's like, well, the weather's changing, and my knee's hurting, and, you know, my mother died when she was about 70, and I'm 68, so I probably only got a few more years left, and I've got, <laughs> like, well, you are so depressing to talk to. That's why I only call you once a month. This is, this is killing me. But we have those people in our life that, I mean, that's it. They, they're so consumed by, by these health issues. This, well, Daddy did this. I don't want to be like Daddy. Or, man, like, mama came down with cancer when she was 40 something and i'm in my 40s is that going to happen to me did is this is this lump in my throat is that something this knot in my leg was that like it eats up a lot of our time and again most of the time it turns out to be nothing but we let it consume a lot of our bandwidth the 10 percent, 10 percent is what i think can be a whole lot more in teenagers but 10 percent is worried about what other people think and, and again, when it came to me and my wife changing course in our home, that 10% was big. Because we had a lot of things that we really needed wise counsel in. Like, we really needed people to speak truth into our lives. But you can get so bottled up, worried about what other people are going to think, that you keep it to yourselves and you try to figure it out yourselves. The truth is, if you could have figured it out yourself, you would have done it a long time ago. If you had the answers, you would have found it by now. 
But you have to get past that if you're, you're ever going to find any true progress. Because in the end, one, there's going to be growth through those seasons where you, you invite that wise counsel in. But this is no different than the 40% that may never happen. I can worry about that 40% and it doesn't matter how much I worry, I'm never going to change it. It's the same thing with people. It doesn't matter how much I worry about what other people think. I can't change the way other people think. I can only change what I do. Now, eventually, if I, if I, if I live a certain way, my actions, you know, they reflect that and, and trust is built and, you know, people see, see real change. Over time, people's minds can change, but that can't be your concern. You can't change the way people think about you. So that, that's 92%. What is that? That leaves us with eight. There is 8% of things that are legitimate concerns that we can actually do something about. One of, one of the troubles that I have in my mindset, in my home, is, is understanding my role as a father. As a father, I, there's things that I want for my, my spouse and I want for my children that they may not at that season want for themselves. And you guys who are parents, that's hard. And I know you're in that season where you see your kid growing up and you, you see their potential, and man, you want something for them, and you know they're capable of it, but they don't want it for themselves. And it's frustrating. Man, it's frustrating. But through that season, like the, what the Lord is teaching me is that like, I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays the Holy Spirit a lot better than I do. So I just need to focus on that 8% that I can legitimately control and do something about. I can't create heart change in my spouse. I can't create heart change in my children. But I can decide on how I'm going to provide and protect them. I can decide on how I'm going to handle spiritual discipline in the home. I can decide on how I'm going to pursue my personal holiness and how I'm going to show love and affection towards them. Like That's the 8% that I can legitimately do something about and then trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. But we get so wrapped up in busyness and we get worried about this other 92% that we show up at our home at the end of the day and we are so gassed that we can't even focus on the 8% of things that we really really need to focus on that's a struggle there are so many days that I get home at the end of the day and I've burnt myself out on that 92 percent and I've got eight percent sitting in front of me in the shape of three kids man and I'm just so burned out that I'm like man how am I going to get through this I got five more hours before it's bedtime and I got to power through it But we will. We'll wear ourselves out worrying about the things we can't change. And then when it comes to the things that we can actually truly speak into, we don't have it. And the problem is that is when we get busy and our time and our margin gets small, we try to have these these $100 conversations in nickel moments. Like I'm trying to cover as much as I can in this much space because I haven't created the space for it. I haven't created the time. I'm trying to have deep, meaningful conversations 10 minutes before my kids go to bed when he's got 45 minutes of stuff he needs to talk about and, and get through that happened at school today. So it's, it's really about how I, how I margin my time, how I see the world around me, how I change my perspective and, and invest in my wife, invest in my kids and going, you know, is this something that I can really do anything about? And if not, I'm going to save that time and I'm going to invest it where I can. So focus on that 8%. All right, we're almost there, guys. The last thing I have is to anchor down. So Mark, uh, Mark chapter 9, verses uh, 14 through 29, it's, it's a story of how Jesus heals this boy with an unclean spirit. And 
So Jesus is, he's been up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's been with Elijah and Moses and uh, there's this magnificent scene uh, of his glory and then he comes off the mountain and he enters into this crowd that's kind of arguing and disputing with one another and he goes and he asks them what they're arguing about and this man speaks up. And so we'll, uh, we'll start in, uh, in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled back, foaming at the mouth. I'm sorry, let me back up. Let me go to 17. Give you some more context, sorry. All right, 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If I can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then Jesus goes on and he talks about, he says that likewise the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and he's going to be afflicted and he's going to be killed and on the third day he's going to rise. But I want us to focus on, on the prayer of the Father here. Like this Father... He, he comes to him and he says, I, I brought my son. I brought my son to your disciples. Like, I wanted to see change. And it, and it didn't happen. So Jesus, if there's anything you can do, have mercy on me. And Jesus turns to him and he goes, what do you mean if I can? He said, all things are possible for him who believes. So he turns it back into the father's face. He goes, this isn't about me. He says, I am sufficient. I can and I will. But it's to him who believes. But the father's response is money. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. He said, help, help my unbelief. Like, how beautiful is it that in, in this story we see that you know, this, this son appears as dead and he's risen and then Christ himself foretells of the fact that he's about to die and be resurrected. And through that, man, we, have, we serve a God who's answering this prayer. Who helps our unbelief by sending us the Holy Spirit who changes the desires of our heart and answers our prayers and changes that unbelief. Like that's the kind of God that we serve. I, th- I think w- where we get bound up oftentimes is we, we want to see this change in the home. And we want to see things move in a different direction in our marriage and in our children. And then we kind of become self-reliant. <clears throat> and we start trying to work it out ourselves. We start trying to create the change. 
And then when it doesn't happen, we end up kind of looking like the disciples, where these disciples have gotten, they kind of gotten in a rut of their practices. And like, we, this has worked before and it's not working now. We don't know why we can't cast this thing out. And he says, man, this can only be done through prayer and by faith. So our hope as we move forward is like, the Lord is, is good and he's given us the Holy Spirit to, to encourage us and to help us work through this unbelief. But more than that, for us to have the mindset that we also serve a God who is not afraid to interrupt our happiness in order to produce change. So much, so much of us define our success as happiness in our life. Like if my kids are behaving right and my marriage is good, then the Lord must be in it. But the time I hit a season of turmoil or strife, the Lord must not be in this. I'm doing something wrong. Kids are doing something wrong. Spouse is doing something wrong. Like that's not the, it's not the God we serve. We serve a God who, who is going to, he's going to allow us to endure trials because he loves us. Because he knows that there's going to be growth through those seasons that can't be accomplished any other way. So he's going to let us endure that because he is not as concerned with our happiness as he is with our holiness. He's going to allow us to endure those things. So as you guys move forward in this, where you're, you're working hard to edit, you know, edit your relationships, edit the things that happen in the home, to change the mindsets on how you see one another and love one another, and you kind of get momentum. When you hit that next season of conflict, like lean into the passage like this where you see the Father lean in and he just prays like, Lord, just help my unbelief. Because you're going to hit a season where you're just not seeing it and you're just not feeling it and you're going, man, like I don't see the Lord in this. And that's the moment you got to lean in and go like, Father, help my unbelief. I know this is a season of trial, but change my perspective where I see this, this season we're going through. I see this hardship as what it is, that you're growing us through it, that you're creating change in our lives that you couldn't do otherwise, and we trust that you're good and you're holy and you're for us. And that's what's going to help you endure. So uh, if you'll throw up those book, uh, book references up there. I can't remember the title, so I have to turn around and look. So the first one is uh, called What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage by Paul David Tripp. It's a great book. He, really, he's talking about the fact that you know, you're two broken people living in a broken world and that uh, we often enter uh, into marriage with these unrealistic expectations of our spouses. So it's about putting a realistic expectation back into what marriage is supposed to be, that it's basically two broken people living together and by the, the grace and glory of God that we're actually united as one. The next book is called The Noticer. That's the one I was talking about with the character named Jones and Walker Miles. It's, uh, it's all a person needs is a little perspective. So this whole book, it, it kind of goes through this character who meets different people through different circumstances in their lives, whether it's you know loss of a spouse or a child or financial issues or anger issues and all these things. And he's offering a different perspective on, on how the Lord works through these, these seasons and and that it doesn't matter whether or not you see the sunset, that it's kind of always there. So it's a great book. And then the last one is called A Pray in Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. And that book by Paul, Paul Miller, it's really great. Really, it's just talking about tangible practices that you can put into, pre, put into place uh, to change the way you see prayer. So it's about you know, one of the things he talks about is we often view our prayer life as you know, somebody who's driving a car and they're more focused on the windshield than the road. He's like, we get so wrapped up in how we pray that we forget who we're praying to. 
so it's offering a different perspective on, on how we pray, how we should view prayer, praying through Scripture, and, and really learning how to talk to God instead of just kind of talking to Him uh, in a, just in a back-and-forth you know, conversational way. But uh, those are the three references. Uh, I would highly recommend any of those. They're great. I'm going to hang out up front. You guys will have uh, about 15 minutes, and then Hank's going to come in, and he'll talk about family on mission. All right? Thanks, guys.